Vatten and Brexit. Hello and welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP MEP for London, Gerard Batten. Hi, Gerard. Hello, Ian. The series, of course, brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. The idea, of course, each episode, Gerard, uh, we'll talk about those kind of areas of EU policy that have riled him, intrigued him, uh, infuriated him. And there's no shortage, is there, of course, of the, the latter. Uh, there's always infuriation. It's a Victor Meldrew paradise in yeah. the European Parliament. <laughs> it, it's, it's in, well, it should be in a politician's blood, shouldn't it, to be infuriated by this kind well, of Well, it's nice if you can actually do something positive, which is what we all look forward to. Yeah. Um, what do you want to talk about? Brexit latest, I think you well, want let's to know do, about. Yeah, let's do the latest on Brexit, which involves well, Hillary Benn. Well, I, I was going to be positive, but... <laughs> <laughs> now there's only negative. Now we're, now we're talking about Brino and okay. Brexit in name only. Yeah. I mean... Uh, just to catch up uh, at the risk of boring the listeners, they've heard it before, but where are we with Brexit? Well, we've now got the EU draft withdrawal agreement. The government doesn't seem capable of writing one. We've got the council guidelines on our future relationship with the EU. Uh, and what does that look like? Well, in brief, it looks like we've got to pay them a lot of money. I think it's currently about £40 billion. We're going to have citizens' rights, open borders. So until the end of this transition period, which we think is about 2021, as far as anyone can tell, um, we will still have open borders to any EU citizen that wants to come, mm-hmm. plus their families. They'll have full rights to housing, social security, and health, education, everything else you can think of. So we can expect a lot more people coming in during that period. We will have to buy all the old laws and all the new ones that come in during that period. We'll still be subject to the Court of Justice of the European Union on those laws. Uh, and, of course, we can now allow to negotiate our own trade deals, but we can't implement those until the end of the transition period. And, of course, which is something which I think is fairly iconic, which is uh, that everybody understands, is that we're not going to be able to reclaim our fishing waters or control over our territorial waters or what's called our exclusive economic zone uh, until after the end of the transition period. Why did that one get left, the fishing issue? Why, Why was that deemed to... Uh, not be important enough? That's a good question, and I don't... Well, our government isn't sticking up for us. It isn't, it isn't fighting for Britain anyway, so... And this is, I think, a very... It is it's, it's practical and it's symbolic at the same time because people understand what it means. If you don't control your own fishing waters and your own territorial waters, then it's very symbolic that you don't control a lot of other things as well. And if I can make a point on this, which I think is very important, our fishing industry uh, now, as I'm told when I go on interviewed by the BBC or whatever, oh, why is it important? It only accounts for 0.5% of our economy. Well, yes, it does. That's because it's been destroyed by 40-odd years of membership of the European Union. If we weren't in the EU, it could be 1, 2, 3, 4% of the economy. It would provide a lot of revenue and a lot of jobs for the ancillary industries. But the important thing is that industry is being destroyed... Uh, And under the UN law of the sea, uh, if you don't have a fishing industry capable of exploiting your fishing waters, then you are obliged to hand that over to your nearest neighbours, which in our case would be the European Union. So we're seeing it continually run down. When we do leave the EU, if there's hardly any fishing industry left, we're going to have to hand it over to the EU anyway. So we ought to leave now, reclaim the fishing waters, and then build up our fishing industry. The rights back to your nearest neighbour. Yeah, if you're not capable of actually exploiting your own territorial waters. Is your suspicion then that things could be further manufactured between now and then 
for that situation to occur? Well, we're not seeing them. You know, they don't really want to leave. That's why, you know, I said it's Brino, Brexit in name only. They're not, like I've warned all along in this process, the big danger is that we'll end up in a position where we leave in name but not in reality. And if you want an absolute concrete example of that, Mrs May has said that she's going to negotiate a new security treaty with the EU. Now, that means we're going to be embroiled in their defence uh, and their, their ambitions for European army, European military. And not only that, we're going to have to keep all the police and criminal justice measures like the European arrest warrant. She's already said that. She already made, made a speech on that. I think it was the one in Florence that she did sometime, a few months ago. So she's already said where she wants to go on that. Well, uh, we already have NATO to defend us. Uh, we already had a perfectly good uh, criminal justice system before we join the EU. So why do we need all these things? We don't, quite frankly. But they are part of the EU's ambitions to create a United States of Europe, and we're not really leaving that, according to what Mrs May said. And as I said, the great danger is that we will have a withdrawal agreement, but it's we still pay them... Well, Hillary Benn, you asked me about Hillary Benn at the beginning. Hillary Benn has said that uh, you know it would be preferable to have the European economic area option like Norway rather than full exit. Well, no, it wouldn't, because Norway and Switzerland are in a very bad position as well regarding the EU, although they're not members. As part of the EEA, uh, they have to pay the EU a large amount of money every year in a form of tribute, as it were. They have to buy a large percentage of EU laws, and they have open borders to EU citizens. So that's like being in the EU <laughs> in, in many ways. You're not really out of it. It's a bit like the old you know, uh, um, Eastern Bloc countries of the Soviet Union. You're not actually occupied, but you have to do what they tell you anyway. That's obviously your overarching suspicion about everything that's going on at the moment, that this is, as you said, in, in name only. Yeah, and of course, don't forget this withdrawal agreement, whatever comes out of the, uh, out of the negotiations, and this has got to be voted on in the European Parliament by the autumn, by about October, November time, in order for it to be in place for the European elections in April 2019, when we will no longer be in the EU because we're supposed to be leaving on the 29th of March. Now, to give you a flavour of where the European Parliament stands on this, in the last session that we had on the 14th of March in Strasbourg, uh, there was a resolution on the guidelines on the framework of the future EU-UK relationship. And uh, UKIP MEPs through our group put down some amendments. And just let me give you a, a flavour of some of those. For example, we encourage the other EU states to propose a reciprocal approach in insurance, financial services, manufacturing and medicine based on mutual recognition, uh, such as those agreed in the EU-US bilateral agreement. Uh, that was defeated. That's a positive thing. That was defeated. It voted down by Tory and Labour MEPs. Only UKIP supported it. Uh, we had a couple more, if I can briefly tell you what they were. Uh, rejects the signing of any framework participation agreement that binds UK to EU foreign and defence policy. So we're saying we don't want part of it. That was voted down. Only UKIP MEPs voted for that amendment. Another one deplores and rejects the Council recommendation on future trade agreements which would permit EU to continue accessing UK fishing waters. That was defeated. Again, UKIP MEPs voted for that amendment. Tory, Labour, all the others voted against it. And at the upshot of all that resolution was that it went through by, uh, which would contain many amendments, by the way, was voted in favour of by 544 to 110 with 51 abstentions. So it's looking like the withdrawal agreement is going to be so bad that it will gain the, uh, the acceptance of the European Parliament, or it won't be bad enough, in which case it will get rejected. Now, we could end up in a funny old situation in the European Parliament 
whereby people who think that it doesn't go far enough, the Europhiles, will vote against it, and people like me who think it goes too far will vote against it, and the whole thing could be rejected, and you go back to square one, where we were on the 24th well, of June 2016. What, what does that mean? Another referendum? You start again. <laughs> no, what it means, I hope, is that the British government would actually find some courage to say, well, you don't really want to reach a reasonable accommodation with us, so we will leave under our law, which is easily done by repealing the 1972 European Communities Act, and then we tell you how it's going to work. We want continued tariff-free trade. Do you want it, or do you want WTO terms? We can do it either way. And we are going to actually reclaim our territorial waters. Uh, and we would go through a whole list of things where we tell them how it's going to work in terms of our priorities, our timescales. And I think that the reasonable people in the EU, i.e. the people that run the big businesses and the small, medium-sized businesses, would actually say to their governments, this makes sense, uh, do what Britain wants. At the moment, we are being played by the ideologues, the politicians in the European Union, like Mr Juncker, Mr Verhofstadt and um, other people who actually are there to create a United States of Europe. So why are we allowing ourselves to be dictated to by these people? On the plus side, you'll have a blue passport. Ah. <laughs> well, it's, this is very symbolic, isn't it? And this has been in the news recently about whether the, pass, the new passports are made here or whether they're made somewhere else. And the government has made a decision that they were going to award the contract to a French-Dutch company called uh, Gemalto, I believe is what they're called, uh, because it would cost about £2 more to make them here. And the government says that it's going to save about £120 million. Well, on the face of it, they may make save some money on the contract. But I had uh, some figures done for me by somebody who's very knowledgeable on this subject, and they said, no, by the time you look at all of the uh, implications of this, it actually makes a net loss of about £36 million because the government will lose various revenues, tax revenues, VAT revenues, etc. So the government actually loses money, and then there could be another knock-on effect whereby the company that makes them, Delarue, could actually find that they lose some of their smaller contracts, which are subsidised by the bigger contracts, so then they, they, have to, uh, they will lose business, they may have to lay off staff, those people become unemployed, they then need social security and unemployment pay. So it would actually, it's a false economy to actually award this contract to a foreign company when we could keep it in this country, uh, and the benefit to the economy is much greater than any uh, apparent cost-saving to the government. Was it symbolic? I mean, some might say that in a curious way, it was quite good to give it to a foreign company based on the fact that it makes us look as if we are still open to trade with our European partners. Well, it's an interesting point because the company that makes these passports, Delarue, currently, actually makes passports and I, print, I think prints currency for about 50 countries around the world. So that's an example of how we win business on an international scale and don't need the EU to do it. Now, I think that it makes sense for us as a country to keep that contract within the UK, but it also makes sense to keep Delarue in business so that they can win all these other contracts from other countries. If other countries, wherever they might be in the world, decided they can print their own passports cheaper, well, they're free to do that. But obviously, at the moment, they think they're getting a good deal from Belarus. Uh, just a final point, Gerard. Oh, by the way, can I just ask this question from Paul in Lancashire? He says, can you ask Gerard to, uh, to explain what an MEP does on an average week? Well, um, that's... There's the... always that question that politicians get asked, whether they're yeah. domestic, whether they're uh, mm. EU politicians. 
Now, what, what, is, what does a day look like in well, the diary of an MEP? Um, of course, as, as I explain to people all the time, people think we're in Brussels all the time. We're not in Brussels all the time. We have to be in Strasbourg four days of the month because that's when the plenary sessions take place, when we vote on the endless uh, avalanche of directives, resolutions, own initiatives reports that come out of the committees. And you go and sit on your committee during the uh, uh, rest of that time, not every day, not every week, but when there's something coming up on your committee, you can go to Brussels and sit on the committee and listen to what comes out of that. The rest of the time actually is spent in in dealing great... Oh, there's enormous amounts of um, uh, cons- constituency uh, correspondence in the form of emails. Papers almost stop completely now. Nobody writes me letters anymore. Yeah. But I get literally hundreds of emails every day which uh, need which to be Which is partly dealt why with. you have a podcast now, of course. Exactly. It, 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 it kind of does people. bridge that, uh, that void, if you like, in, in the yeah. sense that uh, it gets a message out there in, yeah. in a far kind of greater... In a far greater yeah, way. We're, we're trying. You know, I have people complain to, to me, oh, I've never heard from you. And I said, no, no, because I've got eight and a half million constituents. And if I write to you, <laughs> all it's going to cost me five million quid in postage stamps. So it doesn't <laughs> happen. And we do have a website, of course, where I put, put stuff up. But very important point there is that when people ask me what I do as an MEP, I am not there in order to impose more EU legislation on them. My primary function and role in the last 13 and a half years, nearly 14 years now that I've been an MEP, is to fight for Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. That's what I'm really there for. That's why people elected me. And don't forget, this is a proportional system. So the people who voted for me want Britain out of the European Union and who voted for my party, UK Independence Party. So that's my primary role, to do everything I possibly can to help Britain get out of the EU and explain how it can be done. And, of course, I do get involved in other things. Can I tell you about something I did uh, in March? Um, On the 24th of March, I was invited to go to Birmingham to speak on a platform for the Justice for the 21. Uh, These were the victims of the Birmingham pub bombings back in 1974, and they have been fighting all of those years, you know, 40 years, in order to get proper justice for the victims of those atrocities. There was no proper inquest. They are still trying to get it put back into a coroner's court so the coroner can consider the cases and find out, you know, because we all know that the case was completely mismanaged by the police. They want to find out who the suspects were, whether they're still alive, whether they can be brought to justice. And they have these people, they are heroic people who actually tried to bring this case to some kind of justice and conclusion. They have been denied six times legal aid in order to pursue this case. Now, you get... Any criminal comes to this country and, and from a foreign country and when they try to deport him, they get legal aid and claim they can't be kicked out because they've got a cat or something at home, you know, and it's against their human rights. They get legal aid for all that. But these people cannot get legal aid to actually pursue their case and they are standing by their relatives who died 40 years ago. So this is one of the biggest acts of terror on on domestic soil. Uh, They are bereaved and they are without justice because of the previous miscarriage uh, that took place, there is nobody right now who's um, currently uh, the um, suspect or the named perpetrator of this crime. Exactly. Uh, As we all know, the wrong people were convicted of this. They were subsequently freed some years later. Uh, But the victims' uh, families don't know who the perpetrators were uh, and there's no, no case pursued against them. So they're entitled at the very least to know who the suspects were and whether any of them are still alive and can be brought to justice. And the political establishment and the government really don't want to deal with this. They want to cover the whole thing up. So I was very um, honoured, really, that they asked me to go and speak on their platform in order to support them, which I did in Birmingham, 
and there was about, I think, two, three, four thousand people in the square at Birmingham that myself and many other speakers talked to. And it was a great day because it was, it was an example of people power, people coming together and saying they're not happy the way things are and they want it done differently. And the more of that we get in this country, I think, the better. OK, that is it for this episode. Thank you to Gerard. Um, if you want to get in touch or if people want to know how they can uh, see what you're up to, uh, where you're posting, what you're doing, uh, what's the best way, Gerard? Well, they can look at my website, which is www.gerardbattenmep.co.uk or I'm on Twitter at Gerard Batten MEP. Good work. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Ian. 